when I started here in, uh, I think it was September of 09, Thomas Moore was a, um, thank you, he was a rising uh, freshman at Laney High School, and we were in a small group at Duke Lineberry's house. I was a half-time youth pastor here, and Thomas would barely say a word. Isn't that true? Barely say a word. And he has faithfully served at Power Camp every summer around here. He serves all of our Next Generation Ministries. God promotes faithfulness. And my goodness, the anointing on that young man's life. Wow, that was so good, Thomas Moore. I'm just, just absolutely thrilled. Oh, bless Jesus. I love our church. You know, I also love that uh, Thomas is up here wearing a pea coat and a scarf, and then we have Jack Newton back there with his Christmas tie. Come on, let's see it, Jack. <laughs> Isn't it good that we have such diversity in our family? Can we say amen to that this morning? You know, uh, I discovered this past week that um, we are Myrtle Grove, little Myrtle Grove here. Our little church is on iTunes podcasts. Did you guys know that? I didn't know that either. So I was talking to Dean and uh, Richard Perry. He's in the back. He operates our camera back there. And his wife, Lisa, was the one who sang and did the wonderful reading. And their son, Connor, actually lit the angel candle this morning. But if you didn't know that, we, have, we are on iTunes podcast. And you can listen to us when you're at the gym or walking or whatever. And if any of these sermons are helpful to you, like them on, on that uh, iTunes, share them, and uh, that would be helpful to us as we seek to reach Wilmington with the life and love of Jesus. And uh, thank you, Richard, for all your work on our website. Can we give him a hand? <clears throat> Last thing before we jump in, uh, the Jason Gray concert that's coming up, we're very excited about that. All the proceeds, 100% of the proceeds from that are going to the Bear Foundation, the Bear Foundation is a local uh, foundation here in Wilmington, and they have about, I think, pushing 70 kids in foster care or adopt to, foster to adopt care, and we're giving all of the monies that come in from that directly to them to support uh, them celebrating Christmas in their foster families. So anyway, don't forget that. Mark your calendar the 16th and come join us. Uh, we're in a collection of messages around the Gospel of John. Um, We've been having some fun there. I love the Gospel of John, so turn with us. We're in John 2, and uh, I love this story this morning because it's <clears throat> where Jesus turns the water into wine. Fascinating story, Jesus' first miracle. So let's jump in, and we're going to read verses uh, 1 through 11 of John chapter 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, we have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. 
They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to bring revelation to our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, we open the eyes of our heart, we open the ears of our heart, we turn our minds towards you. We acknowledge that it is through you, by you, you in us, us abiding in you, you living your life through us. And we ask that this morning as we look at your precious letter to believers, that you would unpack it in our hearts and minds and you would change us and conform us into the likeness of Christ. We love you. In the great name of Jesus we pray, amen. A precious little baby, the sounds of life in our midst. We also have August George. I believe this is his first Sunday. This is uh, Jen and, and David wave at us. He is up here. Let's give them a hand. Come on. <laughs> Jen's parents are also here from Colorado, so we're very proud of uh, them and the new little one that's, that's joined us. So, um, well, here we go. John chapter 2. So Abby and I have this um, older pickup truck. It's a 1970-something pickup truck. I actually drove it this morning, and we call it the Pawpaw truck. And it's kind of a truck that we use. Um, I got a really good deal on it. I couldn't say no. And it actually has a hole about yay big in the driver's side floor. Uh, so I can look down and see the asphalt as it goes by. I got to put a little something over it. But we love this little truck because we throw our bikes in the back, and we take them down and do some bike rides, or we'll... Get in it, all four of us will pile in and we'll all, you know, two, one seatbelt around the two kids. Or if it's just Abby and I, she'll actually snuggle up next to me and we'll ride down the road like this, you know, with an empty far seat, uh, which, is, which is also fun. Um, it had a CD player in it and Eve loved, that's our 11-year-old daughter, loved to jam her Taylor Swift album in it. <laughs> and and the, the saddest thing happened because the CD player quit working and it ate the Taylor Swift album. I still have not lived it down that our pawpaw truck ate my daughter's uh, new CD. <laughs> but we call this thing the pawpaw truck because it reminds us of two very, very important people in our lives. This past weekend, Abby's grandfather passed away. She called him pawpaw. He was 90 years old. And we traveled down to Birmingham, Alabama, and I was asked, given the great honor of doing the graveside service. And it, for some reason, the Holy Spirit began to prompt some different things in my heart, and I began to think about this 90-year-old man that I had come to know and love and respect, and Abby has tears in her eyes over here. And I have a pawpaw, or had a pawpaw also. And both of our pawpaws had these old pawpaw trucks. And Abby, actually, when we got the truck, she said, Michael, you need to put pawpaw on the license plate. And I was too cheap and didn't do it. 
but I'm regretting it horribly now, I gotta tell you. But we went down to Birmingham and her Pawpaw lived the most fabulous life. Man of great character, man of great integrity. He'd been married 69 years, had five children. Really, really neat. He was a business owner. He was actually a star quarterback at Wake Forest. Come on, where's David Hartness? I'm going to hear him cheering. <laughs> there we go. He was a star quarterback at Wake Forest. He was a city councilman. He sang in the choir, very, very involved in their church in Birmingham. And I began to thank God for the godly lineage, the legacy that Abby and I have in our families. So my Pawpaw actually used to take his Pawpaw truck. It was light blue. And he used to take it around to the grocery stores um, all over Wilmington, and he would get the day-old uh, bread and pastries and um, vegetables and fruit, and then he would take it downtown and to various places, and he would distribute it to people who were hungry or in need. Just loved that. Just loved that. But he also was married for many, many years. In fact, my wedding band, it's such an honor that I get to wear this, but this is actually engraved with both of my grandparents' initials. And in it is the date that they got married, which was 2-8-1947. Isn't that amazing? Legacy. Legacy is so important. Both of our Pawpaws were of the builder generation. And I began to sort of study and just look at this builder generation. This was a generation that lived on the aftermath of World War I. They lived right through the Great Depression. They lived through Pearl Harbor, which we just celebrated, I think, the 75th anniversary, this December 7th. They lived through World War II, D-Day, the nuclear age. And because of the many challenges and turmoils of their young years, they really valued consistency, integrity, honor, character. These were men and women who were fierce patriots. My papa was actually a Navy man, and he had tattoos on both of his forearms. I didn't totally understand the weight of what that generation had lived through until I was uh, 17 years old, and I was in Chicago, Illinois. I'd saved my money, and I flew up to Chicago for a conference that happened at Willow Creek up there, and I was staying with a man and a woman who were part of the builder generation, have enormous respect for both of them, and uh, the movie Saving Private Ryan came out. You guys remember that one? And he asked me if I'd go with him between conference sessions. So we went to go see this movie, and we're sitting in there, and um, he was not, the, the man I was with was not actually a paratrooper on D-Day, but he had numerous friends who were paratroopers on D-Day who were dropped on, right behind the beaches at Normandy, France, right before dawn, in the nighttime hours, before this big attack happened. And I sat there next to him, and the intensity in this man, he grabbed my arm and he dug his fingernails into my arm the entire movie. And he just gripped the chair and it, and it wasn't just a Hollywood production to him. He lived through it. He felt it. He knew it. He experienced it. He lost friends. He lost companions. And I remember I walked out of that gripped probably for the first time at what this generation had lived through. There's a reason they're called the greatest generation. And a lot of times the younger generations don't understand the loyalty, the commitment, the patriotism. There's much I think that we can learn. And as we were down in Birmingham, as I shared some of these same things at Papaw's graveside, 
I think my eyes were even opened to the value of legacy. Both of our pawpaws carried many of this, these ethics that shaped the builder generation. Both of our pawpaws chose relationship with God. This is fascinating to me. Both of our pawpaws chose relationship with God and relationship with their families over everything else in life. They were far from perfect. But I looked at Abby as we were on our way back and I said, if at the end of my life, I can look back on the legacy that your papa has or that my papa has. I'll be a content man. See, in the Christian life, you can choose relationship or you can choose religion, but you can't choose both. What's fascinating as I look back at our papa's lives is both of these men chose relationship over religion. And as we sort of unpack this story in John 2, I want us to take a deeper look at that. But religious people constrict themselves into external rules and regulations in order to earn their way into relationship with a righteous God. You follow me? People in relationship are in this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit begins to transform people in intimate relationship from the inside out. It's very different. As a believer, you'll choose religion or you'll choose relationship, but you can't choose both. So I want to dig into our scripture here this morning, and I want to take a little more in-depth look, unpack this. But the story begins in Cana in Galilee, and it's way away from the pomp and the religious fluff of Jerusalem. Way far away. Very fascinating to me that Jesus would choose to start his ministry way away from where the sort of the center of that world and that day and that time was. Mary had been invited to this wedding, and weddings at that point in time probably lasted about a week. They're big parties, big wonderful celebrations. We assume at this point that Joseph, Jesus' dad, has probably passed away because he's not mentioned in the story or any of the Gospels after, I think, age 12, when Jesus turned 12. But Jesus, for whatever reason, is also invited, and he's invited with his four disciples. He only had four at the time, so he's building this little kind of missional community of disciples Andrew, Peter, Nathaniel, and Philip, and they all go to this wedding feast. And I think this first miracle is supremely significant for several reasons. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, you don't have to turn there, but Paul is referencing the Last Supper where Christ Jesus took the bread and took the wine and broke it and poured out the, the wine, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. It is incredible to me that Jesus began, his first miracle was turning water into wine, and the last interaction, the last significant teaching Jesus does with his disciples is pouring out this wine and saying, do this, take this in remembrance of me. See, symbolically in the New Testament, wine is very much representative of the new covenant. Christ in us, our risen Lord, the blood of Christ. We have an empty cross back here because we serve a risen Lord who now takes up residency in our hearts, those of us who call on him. I think it's also fascinating that Jesus' ministry takes place at a wedding because there's this beautiful mystical union between Christ and his church, his bride. We're the bride of Christ. When I was younger, I remember going, how can I be a bride? What does that mean to be a bride of Christ? 
but I'm a responder to the love of Jesus. We as, the, as Myrtle Grove, we as the larger collective body, we as people around the world who submit to the Lordship of Christ are part of the bride of Christ. If you study the end of the book, Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22, you see a lot about the bride of Christ. History will culminate with the marriage of Christ to his church. How fitting it is to me that this is where we begin the ministry. His whole ministry starts at a wedding. His whole ministry starts at a wedding feast, sort of symbolic of, of the whole purpose with which he's on earth. He is preparing the bride of Christ. We are part of that. And when it gets messy or when it gets ugly or when you're frustrated with a spouse or someone else in the body of Christ, take a step back and remember, they're part of the body. They're part of who Jesus is coming back for. No doubt, we're all far from perfect and we're all being transitioned into his likeness. The other thing that I think is fascinating here, other than the the mystical union and the choice that Jesus would would do this at this wedding feast, change the water to wine, is that Moses' first miracle was turning water into what? Blood. Moses' first miracle, his first supernatural act in front of Pharaoh was turning water into blood. Kind of symbolic, I think, of the Old Testament covenant. Jesus' first miracle, very different, is turning water into wine. The beauty and the ease and even comfort of the New Testament covenant. See, works righteousness is augmented, or in the Old Testament, the, the works of the Old Covenant was augmented by animal sacrifice in the Mosaic Law, And it's replaced with the relationship that we share through our risen Jesus in the new covenant. I think the other thing that I love about this story is I can just imagine that Jesus, he's he's coming into this, um, this wedding celebration. Can you imagine being the bride and the groom? They didn't quite know who this man was. But you're a bride and a groom, you're getting ready to get married and Jesus comes in And if you actually, I I did the math on this, there was um, these six water jars, and if they each held 30 gallons, it would be 900 bottles of wine. That's 75 cases. A case is 12 bottles. Man, did Jesus do it right. But I think what I want you to see here, I think what God wants us to see here is when Jesus comes in, his heart is to bless. See, I think he was actually setting up this couple for success in life, even even financial provision. They couldn't have drunk all that wine at their extended party. You just begin to see God's heart for the bride, God's heart for his church. So our story continues and the wine runs out in the middle of this party. So the party's going on and you know, you don't, we don't get to know Mary's character a lot after the, the beginning. She's young and you get to see her carrying the Lord Jesus. But the, the wine runs out and then Mary comes to Jesus and she really wants Jesus to get involved. And we don't exactly know what she's wanting here. What is she really asking? So I had some questions. Has she ever seen Jesus do a miracle? We don't know. Growing up, did Jesus do something supernatural? It's not written. We don't know. But she looked at Christ with such expectation. And Jesus responds to her and calls her woman. So I was wondering, is he correcting her? 
So I dug a little bit deeper, and in the Greek, woman here is not disrespectful. It's very actually a respectful term. It's a respectful phrase, but it does appear that he is correcting her. And I think that really what he wanted to do here in this moment is Mary is saying, hey, will you intervene? Will you do a miracle? Will you help our situation? And Jesus makes something very clear. He doesn't call her mother. He says woman. And I think what he's doing, because he has disciples watching, his mother's watching, the servants are watching, the, the the feast is probably going on in a separate part of the house or the community. And I think he's setting a precedent that no human will interfere with the supernatural acts of God. And that he will not really, he won't give deference and he won't do miracles because a family member calls him to. Only when the spirit of God moves. But what's fascinating is on the other side of it, so so in a way, he actually takes some pressure off of his mother. Woman, you cannot dictate the miracles of God. But then he turns around and does what she says. Amazing to me. Amazing to see the heart of Jesus. So you could take it and look at it that that God is almost correcting or disciplining or whatever his, his mother there. And a side note, but I think an important note, is when you're under the discipline of God, it's best to simply humbly respond and learn and grow, which Mary does. Just absolutely takes it. But then in faith, she turns and says to the servants, what? Do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. Like the faith of this woman is amazing. So in spite of the corrections, Mary looks and tells them to do it. And then we have these six water pots of stone. Now these these stone water pots were intended for ceremonial washing from pollutants. Okay, so in the Old Testament, there's these 613 mitzvah laws in the Torah. I don't wanna get too much into this, but there's also thousands more rabbinical laws that were generated by the Pharisees, and many of them included washing and rewashing. So you've got this Old Testament paradigm of you have to clean yourself, you have to work, you have to be a part of all these ceremonial things to get clean, and then Jesus comes along and he takes the very religious container, the six religious stone pots, these old containers where you have to wash and work to get clean, and he transforms the works of the Old Testament into the wine of the New Testament. It's appropriating the blood of Christ into our lives that sets us free. It's that intimate relationship with our Jesus, not just one time, but every day. It's that give and take. It's the drinking of the new wine of Christ Jesus that brings life. I wanna remind us that Jesus reserved most of his criticisms for those religious folks, I guess of which I could be one, who spent most of their time cleaning the outside but neglecting the heart. That's who Jesus criticized the most. I'm constantly brought to a point of humility on that. Oh God, let me not be a man. Let us not be a church that is so focused on cleaning the outside, the ceremonial washing, but rather would you take those old covenant things and would you flip them into the wine of the new covenant, the blood of Christ Jesus activated in our behalf, activated in our lives. In this story, we see Jesus actually fulfilling those 613 mitzvah laws by transforming the ceremonial washing. That old ritualistic act, you and I both know, can never make anybody clean. It's the blood of Christ that makes us clean on the inside. 
Jesus literally speaks and the transformation happens from water to wine. This is an aside, but I think it's a really important one. Jesus speaks and a creative miracle takes place. Think back with me to Genesis 1 and 2. How did God create the heavens and the earth? He he spoke. Our words are little containers. And in those containers, they will carry life and health or destruction and death. Our words are powerful. Words we speak to our spouses, to our kids, to our neighbors. Our words are powerful. Jesus simply spoke to these six stone water jars of water and it becomes the most fabulous wine. And then what I absolutely love, just absolutely love, is he doesn't even taste the water. So he's got these six stone water jars. He says, fill them with water. So they fill them. And then he says, draw out some of that water and take it to the master of the feast. I mean, what kind of swag does this guy have? He doesn't even taste it. Come on, just think with me a minute about the insecurities we all feel, the concerns, the fears, the anxieties. I could no more say do something and not taste it or test it or look at it or something. He just, he's standing back and he take the wine, take it into the master of the feast. The confidence, the confidence that that fully submitted life to Christ, the confidence of a life wholly consumed by Christ Jesus breathes. I wanna live a life like that. I want us as a church to live a life like that. So he says, draw out the water and take it into the master of the feast. And the master of the feast tastes it. And he's like, whoa, this is so good. You saved the best for last. Not only that, but 900 bottles of it. The level of faith that Christ had here is challenging for me. Total faith, total faith. I wanna shift and I wanna move into some application portions of this sermon. I wanna talk about how we could probably apply some of this to our lives, the, the, the whole shift from religion to relationship. You see, all of us can choose religion or we can choose relationship, but you really can't choose both. So I want to throw out some things. I want to call us to some things. And I began to make a list in my own sort of journal about indicators that I might be choosing religion over relationship. You ready? First indicator. When my phone takes precedent over my spouse, my kids, and my relationship with Christ Jesus. You know the, uh, the older generations, Gen X would probably understand this, the boomer generation certainly would, but there was like a, an illustration um, in the old days, it'd be in comics, it'd be all over the place, but there'd be a dad in the room with kids and you'd see him with his, his legs up and he'd have a, a newspaper. Some of you younger ones might not even know what that is. He had a newspaper and he, he'd hold the newspaper and it was sort of this picture of a dad who is um, present in body but who is disconnected. You know what I'm saying? What? No, oh, no. Oh. I found myself here. Can I just be that honest? I found myself here. 
about a year ago, I, on, I love Instagram, and on Instagram I follow all these great photographers, I follow great surfers, I follow rock climbers. For me, Instagram's like a five-minute vacation where I'm like, whoa, look at that barrel, yes, I like that. And, but I'm following all these people, and a lot of these photographers start putting girls in bathing suits on their feed. The Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and said, you gotta get off of here, Michael. It's not good for my relationship with God. It wasn't good for my relationship with my wife. It wasn't good for my walk with Christ Jesus. And I signed off Instagram for a few months. I got back on, unfollowed everybody that was posting that kind of stuff. Still like Instagram. But one of the things I've begun to notice now about my phone, about my email, about my text message, is it often interferes with my direct relationship with the Holy Spirit, with my relationship with my wife, and with my relationship with my kids. So Abby and I do a date night every uh, Tuesday night, almost religiously, not quite. We let it flex. But I first, uh, I was taking my phone on this date night, and I was looking at it. This has been six or eight months ago now, and the Holy Spirit started convicting me about bringing my phone. So I started leaving it in the car. Then I took it a step further, and I said, you know what, I'm actually going to leave it at home. I'm leaving it at home because I want to say to my wife, you are the most important thing in this moment, at this time. There is nothing else. It is about us and our relationship. If you don't do a date night, I'd encourage you to take one. Wilbur Davis, are you back over there? He even does a date night. He and Judy, there, there's Miss Judy. So they do a date night. I think it's on Tuesday, isn't it? Friday, okay, it's on Friday. They do a date night. It's a great little tool but if you're doing this, you're missing it. Another thing that I started noticing is I'd come home in the evening and the kids would be there and we'd be hanging out and all of a sudden we're playing a family game or we're talking or we're eating around dinner and all of a sudden what am I doing again? I started coming in and putting my phone up in my, in my bedroom, just plugging it in and leaving it. It's not that I don't check it. I'll walk in there and look at it. I'm not being irresponsible. But I'm not going to give the world access to my precious time that ought to be focused on my wife, on my kids, and on my Jesus. You hear me? An indicator that we might be a little bit religious, that we might not be wholly submitted to the Lordship of Christ Jesus and engaging in relationship is if we are disconnected from our family in order to be connected on our device. I don't wanna be that dad who's present in body but not present in mind and emotion with my kids. I actually felt the Holy Spirit ask me at one point, are you checking in with social media more, you're check, more than you're checking in with my Holy Spirit? How many likes did I get? How many likes? Did you like my photo, Tommy? Did you like? Come on, and we start doing that. I, even you, the older ones of us, you guys are on Facebook. I know you are, and you're scrolling stuff. And sometimes we're reading articles that are inflammatory, and we're getting all worked up, and we're frustrated about this, and we can't believe that, and oh my goodness. And all of a sudden, we're neglecting the things that God has called us to, the relationships. Just be cautious. Number two. So again, these are just indicators that you might be choosing Religion over relationship, just indicators. Number two, if you can understand and control all aspects of your relationship with God. Oh, 
Our God is a consuming fire. He is the Lion of Judah. He came to earth. He transformed water into wine. He went to a cross. He was crucified. And all power in heaven and earth came together and raised him from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And we have been sort of embodied with the power and life of Christ Jesus. We cannot comprehend every aspect of who he is. If we can control and comprehend every aspect of our relationship with God, church, we're missing something. Number three, in your relationship, if, if your rightness is elevated above your relationships. See, in any given moment, in any given interaction with Abby, my rightness on any issue, did I forget this or did I not do this? or whoa, whoa, My rightness should be subservient to our relationship relationship with our God, relationship with the people that God's called us to. That is the primary thing. We serve this intensely relational God. And if you study the scriptures, you have Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and they're three in one, and we have no idea what that means. But what it means is they are communal. They do life together. They hang out together. They love each other's company. And he's created us as these fiercely relational beings to be in relationship with him and then families and then communities. You know why we come to church? To engage in life together. There's whole groups of millennials and Gen Xers that don't even come to church and they think, well, I don't wanna be a part of that religious institution. That's the flip side of the same coin. I'm telling you. It's a fleshly reaction to religious people, which is the flip side of the same thing. God has called us to live life together. And it's messy, and it's crazy, and it's funny, and we step on each other's toes, and we gotta ask each other's forgiveness, but he has called us to life together. So a third indicator is that if you elevate your rightness over your relationships. Number four, if when a newcomer enters our community, our goal is to conform them before we engage them relationally. If when a newcomer enters into our community, if our goal is to conform them before we engage them relationally, that's an indicator that we're becoming religious and stuffy. I don't wanna be that way. Jesus engaged people, he loved people, he welcomed people, he ate with people, he's eaten with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. He has never preached to anybody. You don't see him pointing his finger at anybody but who? The religious people. The people that have names on their offices in long hallways. <laughs> Serious. See, God, God has called us to eat and love and engage people out there before he transforms them in here. Number five. If the church becomes a copycatter of the current trends rather than life on mission together. Well, that's a little complicated. If our church becomes a copycatter of current trends rather than life on mission together. Here's what I mean. Um, in the 1970s and the 1980s, traditional church was the thing. So when you thought of church, you thought of steeples, you thought of pews, you thought of organs, you thought of um, more formal buildings. And then in the 80s and 90s, a few churches started popping up, certainly by the late 90s, contemporary church becomes the norm, right? Contemporary church, it's more blacked out. The stage is gonna be maybe, who knows, taller. You got a drum pit, you got, the, the, the whole thing begins to shift. Now in 2016, 
I meet with a group of eight or nine young pastors in the city. They've all planted churches. Guess what they all are? Contemporary. Contemporary. Dark auditoriums, louder music, drums, no pews, no steeples, no... The contemporary church is the new traditional church. Can you say it again? The contemporary church of 2016 is just about the same as the traditional church was in the 70s and 80s. What we have to be about is seeking and watching and finding what the presence and power of God is doing in our day and then getting on that, not copycatting what everyone else is doing. I happen to like our pews. I do. I'd probably change the green carpet. Can I be that honest? But I like our pews. Ralph Jensen, are you here? Look at Ralph, back here. Ralph Jensen made that cross. He made that dove. What's that? Who? Steve Dunn. Steve Dunn, okay. Ralph Jensen made the dove and the arch. Is that right? And the table, which is out there right now, okay. So Ralph told me he made this, I guess it was the arch you were telling me then that you made, and he had to actually break out a wall of his workshop because it was so big, he had to like machine it through. I didn't even understand all of it. But that's a beautiful thing. God has not called us to copycat what every church is doing in 2016. He has called us to put our ear to the ground of what the Holy Spirit is doing next. What's the next wave? What's the next move? Let's be ahead of the curve. Let's do what other people aren't doing in order to engage and reach a lost culture. Can we do that? Let's be people who are so vibrant lovers of Jesus and each other that people go, wow, those people are wild. I wanna be a part of that community. They're actually real. They talk about real stuff. They're not just religious. Because you can choose religious or you can choose relationship. But you can't choose both. Number six, when the number of people who attend our church becomes more important than the quality of the discipleship we experience. It's a big one. An indicator that we might be religious is if we're more focused on the number than the quality of the disciples and relationships that we're building. Number seven, if your prayers and dreams are humanly possible. You're in danger of becoming religious if your dreams and your prayers are humanly possible. God has called us to pray big prayers, to believe big things. You read the Bible, man, it is full of people who did crazy things. He empowered them, he walked with them, he infused them with life. It's such a good thing. Number eight, if your quiet time whatever you call your journal time, your relationship with Jesus time, but if that quiet time has become more about accruing knowledge than an intimate love relationship with the Father, you're in danger of becoming religious. Number nine, when church attendance is on your to-do list or might be on your to-don't list, it's not viewed as a gathering of people that you're on mission with. We're in danger of becoming religious. And the last thing is when you're tithe, this is interesting, but the Holy Spirit spoke this to me powerfully. 
when your tithe becomes an obligatory part of your social construct instead of an expression of an intimate relationship with Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean that the presence and power of God is activated in every one of our lives. And to the degree that we live in disobedience, we can strangle the presence and power of God out of our lives. Can I say that? That doesn't chafe against radical grace. Radical grace calls us to bring our lives into conformity with the Lordship of Christ. A lot of millennials, our younger generation, I'm one of them, so I can pick on them. But they wanna just give when their heart beats and when they're excited about a cause. God's called us to be percentage givers. God's called us to be people who sow. Our kids make this little tiny allowance. We're already teaching them. 10% into your saving jar, 10% into your tithe jar. You can spend the rest. God's called us to that. It's an act of worship. It's an intimate interaction with God. And the last thing we ever want to do is strangle the power and presence of God from our lives. By tithing, we are engaging relationship with Christ Jesus to the full. We're taking God to the full capacity that he's intending in our lives. See, as a believer, you'll choose religion or you'll choose relationship, but you can't choose both. You're gonna choose to spend your life at the six ceremonial stone jars, washing and washing and working and washing, trying to get clean, or you're gonna receive the blood of the new covenant. You're gonna drink deeply of the wine of Christ Jesus and allow him in the finished work of the cross to take your heart. Dean, thank you for playing. You can keep going. As we close here, let's close our eyes. Just still our hearts a minute, still our pens and our papers. Just turn the attention of our hearts to the Holy Spirit and let him speak to us. Many of us in the room are believers and there might be an area where the Holy Spirit wants to point out in your heart that you're choosing religion over relationship and you might need just to repent. There might even be somebody, a son, a daughter, a grandson, a spouse, a brother, a sister. There might be somebody else you need to go to and ask their forgiveness. religion and rules over relationship. Maybe you're a believer here and in your heart you need to surrender again to that deep relationship with Christ Jesus. Let him work in your heart. There might be another group here today and you might be someone who's never tasted of the new wine of Christ Jesus. You've never tasted of this grace, of this relationship to church being about religion. As eyes are closed, if there's someone in the room who wants to rededicate or, or taste of that new wine of Christ Jesus for the first time, would you lift up your hand? Anyone in the room? See that hand. Are there more? I want all of us to pray together. Let's all in one voice pray, and I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we ask Christ Jesus to come in and touch our hearts. Will you repeat after me? 
Lord Jesus, I praise you for the wine of the new covenant. I praise you that you are a God of relationship, not a God of religion. I praise you, Jesus, that you went to a cross and you were crucified for my sin. That on the third day, you rose victorious over sin and over death. And I praise you, Jesus, that my sin has been forgiven. The sin of yesterday, the sin of today, and the sin of tomorrow. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to come into my heart, to live there.